The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets, policy and politics, startups, creatives, Hollywood. Such an omnivorous program. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Any of these types of borrowings are getting more expensive. If you have an adjustable rate mortgage, it's gotten more expensive. So, you know, you're going to start feeling that squeeze of higher interest rates as it filters through to you. And therefore, you're going to say, you know what? I think I need to tighten the belt a little bit. I think I need to, to really cut back. I, I'm spending out more money on my rent. I'm spending more money on my daycares, on all of these different things. And sorry to keep coming back to the daycare. You can tell what stresses me out. But you start to to look at your finances more critically and cut back on these discretionary purchases. In case you missed it, from the Better Than Ezra guys rock star diversification to college's new Moneyball to NPR Mageddon, back with highlights from recent broadcasts. Do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start with a rewind to my recent interview with Kevin Griffin, frontman for the band Better Than Ezra, a prolific songwriter, producer, festival impresario, and backer of new talent... He's managed to thrive through three decades of music industry dislocation. Here's the deal. So you love that inside baseball stuff. And yesterday I'm driving on 95, long drive in the mid-Atlantic. And I discovered, this is a little bit neither here nor there, the Def Leppard. All right. For a true Def Leppard fan, they actually, these guys, there's a couple of guys, I think in Ireland and in uh, the UK, one's in Scotland, they connect over Riverside or something. And they intimately dissect every track on this episode of 1981's High and Dry. It's so inside baseball. It's so wonderful. And it's seamlessly streamed from my iPhone to my car stereo from my 2012 Japanese family sedan. And I felt like a billionaire. But knowing we were going to have this interview today, I also felt guilty because it's too seamless. It's too frictionless. And I went back and listened to a ton of... Def Leppard and various podcasts and artists like Yes and Spoon and went back and listened to your entire library with Better Than Ezra and everyone else. And I, again, felt guilty that the trade-off of convenience versus compensation, there has to be a better way. And I was wondering, at what point did the artists, were they not able to cry bloody foul and bloody murder? At the turn of the century with the iTunes store, it was at least 99 cents or a buck 29 a track. And now it's pennies per thousands of streams. Well, what happened is, you know, we touched a little on it. The last Copyright Act was the 1972 Copyright Act. Digital didn't exist. You know, so when the streamers decided what they pay the songwriters, not surprisingly, they said nothing, basically, and come and get us. It's going to be a long road getting songwriters, you know, parody to where the master is. But, you know, I'm optimistic. There's people doing amazing work, you know, but talking about, you know, the guilt of, uh, you know, the convenience what all of it tells me 
And I think this is kind of, you know, again, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. What, what it all tells me is that, you know, streaming, the quality of streaming, the compression, the quality, the actual quality of the sound sonically isn't very good. You know, and our ears are so used to listening to MP3s and not the quality. Like see, the high water mark for most people listening to music were CDs in the 90s. Mm. You know, even though that was what the streaming rate was 14.1. Um, and then there are, you know, the high def things. But what it tells you is that people want convenience and the actual quality of the song isn't the currency that matters. What it is, it's the actual song. So what it tells me is that through all the BS, through all the changes, the streaming and the BitTorrent streaming and Napster and stuff, the one thing that resonates with people that makes them stream somebody on TikTok and stuff is the song. So there's through all of it, there's the power of a great song, that melody, that thing that pulls you in. And that is just undeniable. And look, we may be having another conversation in a couple of years when when AI starts writing hits on its own, then, then Jesus Christ, then we're all screwed. But right now, as a songwriter, I'm like, you know what? Through all the challenges, I can still write this great song. Now, maybe I'm not going to make much money from Spotify, but that song is going to be used in a huge new movie. And I'm going to get paid really well for the sync rights or the synchronization rights. You know, so there's still a lot of money. Or if you have a radio hit, you know, the performing rights money you get through BMI or ASCAP, that's still the same and, and can be super lucrative. And the guys, you know, the Pharrells, the Max Martins, the Ryan Tedders of the world, all those people, the Ali Tamposis, you know, they're making money hand over fist. There's still a lot of money to be made. But the quality of what you're hearing sonically isn't there. So it's really about the song. Yeah. Could you explain the securitization of kind of the originals with artists selling their rights, their archives effectively in a in a fixed income yield starved world? You know, I'm thinking of the metaphor like a farmer having to sell his his stone wall or his trees or his timber. But you got to make a living and you got to provide for posterity. Well, what's happening is what the business world realize and, and VC companies and, and people with deep pockets, they realize is that the copyright songs, which is a song that continues to make money even after it's a hit, it's recurrent royalties stay. They plateau, but they stay. That return is between 6 and 8%. So everybody's, it was a light bulb moment. Wait a second. This catalog of this artist from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s is, is making a 6 to 8% return. So what they're doing very smartly is they're going to the Dillons. They're going to you know Bruce Springsteen, all these huge artists that we've all heard about. And they're offering, usually it started off when it was a 9 or 10 multiple of your three-year earnings. Now it's gotten crazy with companies like Hypnosis coming in, which is which Merck McCurry company out of out of London, they're paying 18 or to 22 multiples. So whatever you make in three years from your songwriting catalog, I'm going to multiply that times 22 and you're going to get it in a lump sum. And why it's so attractive to a songwriter who doesn't really need the money, their team will say, Sting, Kevin, you're making this many millions of dollars. It's going to get taxed. A catalog sale gets taxed at corporate gains. So you're only going to pay 20% tax on this catalog wow. sale. You're going to be able to put this money to work and versus betting on yourself for 22 years that some other new thing, AI, doesn't come and further erode your songwriting royalties. And you got to pay taxes at 41% or more on this catalog income. It, it is it, the argument. I remember, you know, I sold a little bit of my catalog from the mid 90s 
the argument that my lawyer and my accountants that made that finally, because I didn't want to do it. I didn't need the money. My accountant said, I'm not going to commission. You have to do this. This is a no brainer. You know, they were literally crying to me. So it's a really compelling time for songwriters who like, wow, the, the time value of money, I can put that money away, only pay 20% tax on it. I'll never get a better deal. You know, you roll the dice. What, what you don't want to have happen is you sell your catalog and then the next year GM buys it to use from the new owner for their huge GM campaign. And you're like, oh my God, because if I would have waited, then that would have blown up my three-year average income, right? So it's a roll would of the dice. Well, here's the thing. Would 1989, you have, have chafed at this, like called it selling out, if you could peer into the future and your crystal ball. I mean, a rocker, an established multi-platinum rocker just cited time value of money for me. <laughs> I told you, brother. I've always, I've always been an a, a entrepreneur and a businessman too. <laughs> and here's, here's what I found out. What I found out is that so many of the great musicians that you love, whether it's Paul McCartney or, or Mellencamp or Beyonce, I tell you what they're known for in addition to, to great musical talent, business talent. And the people, you've got to be able to compartmentalize and put and understand the business you're in because, it, as you know, there's so many tragic stories of, of amazing artists who don't know the business. They get in bad contracts. And then the killer of creativity, which is cynicism and getting jaded, takes over and then you're screwed. So you got to know, you got to know your business. And all the people I know who've been doing it as long as I have, who are still successful and branch out and they pivot and all that stuff, they're really good business people too, you know? So yeah, time value money. Look, I've had to learn, you know, just, you know, and I started a music festival, pilgrimage music festival, you know, in Franklin, we we're on our ninth year. And, you know, I've had to learn about waterfalls and tranches and ROIs and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm just a singer in the nineties rock band. I just say, wah-uh. And that's what I do. I get confused easily. I'm just a caveman lawyer. <laughs> that's what I, you're too self-effacing. I mean, at the very least, I've heard you called the Lang of Tennessee. But, you know, then again, I'm thinking, by the way, of that Oscar-winning documentary, Searching for Sugar Man, several years ago, where this oh really talented artist was fleeced and he kind of had to come out of the woodwork and find a way to make a living. And I find it's pretty binary. We talk to artists, like I'm thinking back to our Silver Sun Pickups episode, and these guys are saying, you know, it's just not cool. It's not right for them to talk about the ledger domain and business and everything. And yet others are realizing we have to be cold eyed about this or else we're not going to be able to make a living, especially as we morph from, you know, young cigarette smoke binging uh, rockers to kind of parents and, and uh, you know, post millennials yeah. and, and Gen Xers. There was a big tipping point that happened in the 90s. And up until this point, it was considered uncool to license your music for use in commercials for with Nike or whatever. And then in the mid-90s, the Stones did it. The Stones licensed uh, Start Me Up. Uh, I forgot what the company was. It was with Microsoft. It, it was Microsoft. They did Let's Spend the Night Together with Sheraton. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Okay. But most people in the business would say, well, ah, Mick Jagger, you know, he'll do anything for a dollar. You know, that he, he's a famous businessman. But really what the tipping point was when Moby put out the play record. You remember that album, the, the play album, right. Moby? He licensed every, he was the label mate. We were both on Electra. Great. He's a great guy. He licensed every one of those songs for commercial use. They were cool songs. The usage that he approved, they were all cool usages, and he crushed. And the paradigm suddenly shifted. At the same time Napster started to happen, 
also bands started to say, hey, actually, this is okay to license. While I'm seeing, you know, a decline in, in record royalties, I can crush by licensing this hit song to Apple or whatever, and I can control it. So you, you started to see a lot of musicians embrace business. And now you'll see a cool new indie band. You'll see Wallows or insert some band that you like. I will tell you, when you go see them play live, they'll be like, yeah, yeah. They won't say, yeah, this, is, this song is number one right now. They'll say, yeah, this is in the new Apple commercial, or this is in, in the last, it's being used in The Last of Us or Shrinking. We're really fired up about it. One, two, three, four. And you actually, you should be a dirty little secret, like corporate shows. But now you're like, hey, man, this is cool. This is how my music gets out there. And this is how you get really compensated well. And there are a lot of artists out there. They're not even touring artists. They're sync artists. S-Y-N-C, short for synchronization. All they, they have a they have an artist's name on Spotify or whatever the streaming services you use. They never tour. All they do are write songs for syncs. And they go into the studio and they get a brief from their publisher. This is who's looking, all the different companies, and write a song with OK, World, Happy, Blue Sky. <laughs> and, and then you're like, OK, let's write a song about a blue sky and top of the world. You know, and they do really well. I mean, I can name a lot of artists that crush, but it's, you know, just like I said in the beginning, while there all the, are these challenges and you're getting screwed in the traditional songwriter sense, suddenly this whole new thing opens up. So while, you know, technology and these changes, some doors close, other ones open. I will tell you, though, 50 angels lose their wings whenever you're at a corporate event and they play clocks by Coldplay. I got to tell you, <laughs> at some point it goes way too far and you got to take it back, guys. <laughs> Everybody likes to bang on Chris Martin and Coldplay, but man, I'm still a massive fan. I saw them in L.A. this past summer and it was it was transcendent. You know, the world always needs their U2. They need their heart on the sleeve. Yeah, but Kevin, the, sh- the shareholder meeting slideshows, that's got to stop. You know, it's like Pierre Cardin <laughs> in the early it. 80s. When you started seeing Pierre Cardin at CVS and everything, you knew like it had gone way too far. Or Halston oh my God, at you're going deep. I like it, Rob. I'm, I'm, like I'm dating myself. But full disclosure, please do stay with us. You were listening to some of my interview with Better Than Ezra's Kevin Griffin. The episode, we called it The Diversified Rockstar, and it includes a performance, is available wherever you get your podcasts. NPR Planet Money's Mary Childs, a friend of the show, chimed in on the Fed's fight against inflation. Does Fed Chair Jerome Powell have to sink this economy in order to save it? One year later from that packed event that we had at the University of Richmond where we promise to come back and say, Mary, if and when inflation does get out of control, which would be the first time in our lifetimes, I yeah. mean, this hasn't happened in 40 years, we were definitely going to have you back on the show. <laughs> what do you make of all this, especially now with Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Congress taking testimony today and saying that this is actually worse than we thought it was, and we're going to have to raise rates probably higher and for longer than we had imagined? Yeah. I mean, you don't love to see it, right? We we spoke last year about how radical it was to see inflation back. And like you're saying, for the first time really in in my career, in my lifetime, it kind of was this thing that I dismissed as like an antiquated (laughs) economic theorem. Like we don't have to worry about that anymore. In fact, we did a show at Planet Money basically about how the world maybe had changed. And we did end up sort of top ticking that change, unfortunately for us. But, you know, it seemed that way at the time. But inflation is definitely back. And it's a real bummer. I mean, we're all feeling it. You feel it at the grocery store. You feel it when you're trying to do any kind of 
home improvement or get sure. daycare or anything at all in our economy, local, national, global. So I think, you know, Jerome Powell obviously has to keep a very close eye on this. The Fed is pretty data dependent. And they were looking at the signs of this economy not responding strongly enough to their attempts to cool inflation by raising interest rates. So here we are after all the rate hikes. I think last year, 2022, saw more rate hikes and in more chunky increments than any time we had seen since Paul Volcker mm-hmm. broke the back rest of inflation in by yeah. sending it, rest in peace, by sending it into, sending the economy into recession. He was the Fed chair in the early 80s. Even after that, we had a January jobs report. This is the thing that I don't think a lot of listeners can understand. More than a half a million jobs were created in January, and that's great news if you're the White House, but not if you're Jerome Powell and you want to kind of uh, bring down the FOMO, if you will. Absolutely. And I think it points to this extremely rough and just awful trade-off that we end up looking at, which is we can have inflation and a medium good jobs environment. But if we if we have a great labor market, if, if things are really tight and workers are really getting jobs, inflation is likely to be pretty hot. And that's bad. So Powell actually raised this interesting question. You know, will working people be better off if we just walk away from our jobs and inflation remains five and six percent? Like, are workers better off if you have this, you know, low unemployment rate, but high inflation? And that relationship is pretty robust. It's there. And that's just bad news. Like, that's just a sad thing in in our economy. Like, surely there's a better way, but we just haven't found it yet. The way to get rid of inflation is to hurt the job market. So why does it come to that? I mean, this has been the Fed's mandate, the Federal Reserve, largely its moderate mandate for the past 100 years, but it has new... Look, if we step back from this, it has a dual role, right? Mm -hmm. Full employment and to keep moderate prices. It has more than full employment right now, arguably, with Mm -hmm. the unemployment rate at about 3.5%. But inflation is out of whack. It would rather have inflation at 2%. Remember 2% inflation? Oh my gosh, good old days, am I right? (laughs) Good old days. But now to, to choke that inflation, it has been raising... Last year, it's been done in by three quarter points, by quarter points, by half points. And we are now close to 5% interest rates. Can you step back and explain why that interest rate is so vital globally and to everybody's pocketbooks? Oh, absolutely. So there are a number of ways that higher interest rates filter through the economy. And one of the primary, like the easiest way to think about it is if you're trying to buy a house. If you're thinking about moving and you're thinking about selling your house and buying a new one and interest rates are at 2% or at zero or whatever, substantially zero as they were so recently, you're like, meh, what's the problem? I'll just, you know, I'll buy a new house. I'll refi if rates go lower, which they always do. And things are Jim dandy. And now, you know, if you're looking at the cost, the monthly cost of your new house that you want to buy with that higher interest rate, you're paying out, you know, hundreds and hundreds more dollars every single month. And so the house that you can buy is hundreds of thousands of dollars less expensive than the one you just could buy last year. So it's this really, really sensitive part of the market. And that's kind of the easiest, one of the easiest transmission mechanisms where prices respond really quickly. Buyers respond really quickly to changes in interest rates because it really has that substantial impact. It's really where rubber meets road there. But put capital investments or large purchases aside, why would it defer me, defray me from staying at a hotel or going to my favorite restaurant? That's so well put. So if you're kind of tightening the belt, your your credit card is suddenly charging you higher rates, your HELOC is more expensive, you know, any kind of home equity. Your home equity line of credit. Exactly. Any of these types of borrowings are getting more expensive. If you have an adjustable rate mortgage, it's gotten more expensive. So, you know, you're going to start feeling that squeeze of higher interest rates as it filters through to you. And therefore, you're going to say, you know what? 
I think I need to tighten the belt a little bit. I think I need to to really cut back. I, I'm spending out more money on my rent. I'm spending more money on my daycares, on all of these different things. And sorry to keep coming back to the daycare. You can tell what stresses me out. But, sure. <laughs> but you start to, to look at your finances more critically and cut back on these discretionary purchases. And that's really what the Fed wants to see. They want to see cooling in all of this consumer spending because that's part of what's creating this hot inflationary environment. What about the flip side, Mary, as a saver? This is something that, again, savers have gotten short shrift uh, in in this century, at least, where many of the years have been at zero or close to zero interest rate policy. Now, as a saver, you could put your money in a CD and get solid. There are CDs offering three and a half, four percent. There are short term. Can you explain the short end of the bond curve where right now you're close to what, five, five and a half percent? Yeah. Is that the other thing that people that do have money wouldn't put it to use if they could park it in something that's paying them something nice? Exactly. We haven't seen rates on, you know, I as a as a consumer, as a potential saver, when I'm making that trade-off decision about what to do with my little chunk of change, am I going to go to a restaurant? Am I going to save this and use it later? You know, one of the ways to cool spending in the economy is to, you kind of get to allocate that money to enforce a change in that decision when I'm trying to balance that. If I'm like, oh, I can make 5% in a CD or I can eat like spaghetti, I'm going to make 5%. Like I kind of want that 5%. So it's wild how responsive we can be to these incentives. And that will cool my discretionary spending because I'm so excited about getting that 5% for the first time in a bajillion years, at least definitely for the first time in my lifetime. And that is a really effective mechanism to to help kind of chill the consumer spending effect. Now, you studied the early 80s and Paul Volcker. You were quite the reporter. I, You know, <laughs> We worked, we crossed paths at Bloomberg. We did. You were at Barron's. You were at the Financial Times. Correct. Well, last time inflation was this bad, I'm under the impression that the Federal Reserve under Paul Volcker in the early 80s had to take rates to the mid-teens. Yeah. You know, by comparison, they're right below 5% right now. That truly, I mean, you're talking about, you said eating spaghetti versus 5%, eating spaghetti versus 15%. <laughs> really nice spaghetti. I want to be clear. You could get a 15% CD at a savings and loan back then. And, and you know what? I'm going to share that anecdote one last If you know Robin Farzad, you know I'm going to talk about my dear dad taking me to the Savings Bank of North Miami Beach and saying, here's that toaster son and that passbook savings account, $500 that you saved up in your 15% you know, government protected CD. We are nowhere near that to kind of mop up. And by the way, that was simultaneous to the fact that everybody's saying death of equities and Mm -hmm. real estate. I mean, who's going to take out a 19 or 20% mortgage or go take a flyer on the stock market when the government is giving you a a chance to mop up your money at 15%. Right. And it's funny you, you, you tell that story. There are so many major investors that have the exact same story. I'm thinking of Robert Smith at Vista Equity Partners. I'm thinking of Michael Hinsey at CQS. Like There are a lot of major names in the investing space that have the exact same experience, and that's how they learn to love investing. And then you have people who came up in this in this you know post-crisis era where it's like, you're getting 0%. People are expected, like all of the rules seem to not apply for that kind of 10, 12-year period, and it was really weird. So in a way, we're going back to something normal. We're going back to a world in which maybe we don't understand how the rules work together, how all of the laws interact, you know, what the relationship between inflation expectations and, you know, wages and and employment might be, but we at least, you know, it's it's like the law of gravity came back all of a sudden. What was, you know, to throw out another hoary 
metaphor here. What was the cliche? What was the straw that broke the camel's back in this case? Oh, gosh. After years of you and I being warned every year at the beginning of every investing outlook, every new interest rate cycle, that this is it. Yeah. This is, you know, it's like Sanford and Sons. This is it. This is a big one. It can't keep going like this forever. Yeah. (laughs) It can't keep the easy money has been made, you know, but it it wasn't it. It And then over time, you would say, well, if that wasn't it, maybe we can flirt with other more dangerous policies, just as quantitative easing, or we can conjure money, or we can have new age thinking about monetary policy. But this time, it seems like it was it. Can you can you look back maybe three years and tell us what happened so differently in the pandemic that finally unleashed capital I inflation? Absolutely. Well, there are a number of things that happened all at once. And it's really unfortunate for like political narratives because they're enmeshed and each is true, I think, to some degree. And, and we're kind of everybody's arguing over what degree that might be. So on the one hand, you have a shock with the pandemic and the government response that this time we decided to err on the side of, you know, generosity of bypassing an, an economic recession that is, you know, protracted and difficult and that harms the labor market for years and years and is hard to come out of like we did after the Great Recession of 2008 and 9. And so this time we erred on the side of, OK, let's send money. Let's just react. Let's do stimulus. And the stimulus was enormous. So right, that was on right. the one hand, you do have this change in the money supply. You have stimulus checks that went to people. You have businesses that didn't have to fire their workers because the paycheck project. So there were many, many programs that all kind of worked so together. Stop. Stop for a second. In addition to the Federal Reserve, which is its own wing, semi-independent wing of the mm-hmm, government, mm-hmm. taking interest rates independent, to zero. Independent, so Robin, this, please. Thank you. Independent. <laughs> the, spigots, the spigot is at full blast. You have Absolutely. bipartisanship under the crisis mode, the Trump presidency initially, with you know some element of bipartisanship. We don't have private business interruption insurance. So they unleashed PPP, mm-hmm. pay, Payroll Protection Program, which if you promise to not- I think you payroll, yes. Yes, but if you promise to not fire your staff, we will give you effectively we will forgive a grant. this loan, right? Yeah. So that happens simultaneously. So there are two mm-hmm. massive spigots into mm-hmm. the economy. And then, so that's on the one side. That's on the kind of supply, money supply side, if you will. And then on the demand side, we were all stuck at home, no longer going out for our very fancy spaghetti, and we're like, you know, twiddling our thumbs, and all of a sudden, everyone's buying a new couch because they're just staring at their couch all day, and every everyone decides to buy new dumbbells to do weights at home, and we just started buying so much stuff, just tons and tons of things. And, you know, it created and also encountered, thanks to COVID, a lot of different snarls along the way in that supply chain. So when we order something from, you know, China, it would get stuck in a port that was shut down due to COVID. And then that boat would finally make it over to the port of LA. And then the port of LA was just backlogged and couldn't get through all of the various boats that had, you know, variations of the same problem. And there were just that many boats, so many more boats than usual. I should say ships sure. people get really sensitive about that so you know it's it's a many pronged thing it all happened at once and again it's hard to detangle what the dominant thing was what the exact catalyst was i think the most fair answer is that they all were present and they all to some degree helped create the situation and here we are you know Workers had better savings, but they, that has largely burned off. And, you know, we've seen a, a remarkably robust labor market for a variety of reasons that, again, are very complicated and hard to detangle. But that's kind of what the Fed is worried about is like, why is the labor market still so strong? Like, shouldn't it be responding to all these rate hikes that we've been throwing at it? Full disclosure, stay with us. That was some of my recent episode, Inflation's Inflection, with Mary Childs of NPR's Planet Money. Brian Keithley and Peter Podgurski, the rascally creatives behind the running social media gag NPR-mageddon, joined us to reveal the plan all along. 
think Lost Angeles via an apocalyptic, zombified, old-timey radio series. I'll let them explain. NPR Mageddon. Uh, you know this handle from Twitter, which spoofs up NPR characters. Some voices out there have said that it's a higher honor than a Peabody or a Pulitzer, but there's clearly been a through line to this. There was a reason why they were putting these crumbs out for the better part of a decade, because this was now released as a deluxe audio series uh, this past January. Did I begin to explain it correctly, gentlemen? That's absolutely correct. That was that was fantastic. Either the decade kind of hurt. That could have hurt my feelings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, to be fair, I mean, there's a there was a pandemic in there, so uh, farm to table these things. Yeah, take we get a while. like a three year coupon on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we get a coupon. You get a coupon. It's like NCAA eligibility. We'll give you two extra years of eligibility. It was actually eight years. And I know you because you guys gave me an NPR again. I don't know what you did. You put me as some buff character with my head and triple chins and a chain-wielding person. And I was like, where is this all headed? Is this a couple of guys oh, you were a and an NPR members? I was a beefcake, which you know as I am in real life as a dad bod. But you guys, like, I, I kept thinking to myself when this went up and when I was seeing other people like Ari Shapiro and – Various characters, big and small. To what end? Is this just a couple guys having fun at an NPR member station? But now I get it. You were setting up clearly some clout on Twitter and some understanding and some pre-publicity for this brilliant idea you have. The series describes national post-apocalyptic radio in a post-apocalyptic Los Angeles. And I, I mean, you guys explain the rest. Um, yeah, well, like... When we first started, I got the idea to do NPR again. My friend Jackson Lansing, who's a comic book uh, writer, he told me about this podcast called Night Vale to listen to. And it's a very, very popular podcast. And it's sort of creepy and it's HP Lovecrafty. And I listened to it and I thought it was really good. But I thought like the scope was very small and is very producible. So it was like one actor talking and there was some creepy music and it was all very good. And I thought, could we make this a lot bigger and a little bit more to my taste? So to make like, like almost like an 80s action movie, just like, a, and a lot of big sounding. And I called up Brian and I said, I think we could make like a, a post-apocalyptic kind of public radio kind of show. And then like he said... <laughs> and about five or seven seconds later, I said, oh, you mean like an NPR Mageddon? And, and, thus, and thus the legend was born. And then I was like, oh, no. Because I, I, I was sitting there thinking about this idea for like the better part of a couple hours. And then like he thought about it for all of seven seconds and was like, oh, you mean like NPR Mageddon? And I was like, yeah, that's the title, huh? And then we were, we were off to the races. I mean, yeah, let me describe this from LAist, which I believe is now linked to, what is it, owned by KPCC or KCRW? I just and, uh, K it KPCC on. became the LAist, so they have morphed. LAist. Yeah. So, so yeah. here, let me let me quote from them. If you're not already familiar with the Twitter account NPR Mageddon, here's a brief tutorial. Imagine the heads of public radio reporters, editors, hosts, and other staff photoshopped onto the bodies of sci-fi superheroes. Or just check out the examples in this story. We're holding weapons, crashing through walls, and just generally flexing impressive muscles that aren't our own. For public media folk getting NPR Mageddon, it's kind of a rite of passage. I'm quoting Jackie Fortier the senior health reporter uh, i want this more than a pulitzer well she got uh, it too like uh, after, after i read that i felt like oh well i better get her one <laughs> so i did i mean sharon mcnary they put her headshot in 2015 on an image of ellen ripley from alien holding a massive gun uh and, and peter you said i think journalists are quite heroic they speak truth to power if you're confronting power all the time you have to be fairly strong oh shucks yeah 
you were right. Like we were trying to build up this Twitter presence before we released our audio series, and so as like a, kind of a proof of concept, I just dolled up like a, a Ira Glass on Mad Max photo, and I showed it to Brian. Like, oh, that's kind of funny, you know. And I tweeted it out, and I said, you know, I can I can kind of I'm pretty good at Photoshop. I can kind of make these, <laughs> and 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 just started following a lot of people and started tweeting it out. And pretty early on, uh, some of the NPR reporters really liked it. Uh, Tamara Keith was really supportive. I'm Tamara Keith. Yeah. I'm Tamara Keith. Yeah, Tamara Keith, like, we had a Tamara Keith week where we basically photoshopped Tamara <laughs> Keith every week on her birth, uh, until her birthday landed on Friday. <laughs> That's So, crazy. like, she's, Tamara Keith is the most NPR Mageddon public radio reporter. I, I, I think the first response was probably, what the heck is this? But then I, they slowly warmed as as they saw what we were doing and kind of valorizing uh, these journalists. So I, I think it kind of took off slowly, but it did take off. But most people don't I, understand it. They're like, what is this? What is this angle? What are you doing? Right? It doesn't make s- Like, people are like, I think this is good. <laughs> yeah. We don't like making sense. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let me take you back to your backgrounds here. So, Brian, you say, intending to become a video game designer, you entered the engineering school of WashU in St. Louis. When Calc 3 and differential equations became... Too soul-crushing, you jump ship to the liberal arts major. I think one of the common threads with so many of our guests is that frustration, whether you take a comedian working at an investment bank or people kind of in their the, the quarter-life crisis and what the heck am I doing and I want do I want to be at this desk and how do I break through, especially when it's not about getting, I mean, just look at NPR, look at TV networks and everything and they've just been crushed into bits and pieces over the past decade and the creator economy and YouTube and Vimeo and Netflix and everybody else, it's both emboldening and terrifying at the same time because there's no set path, you know, to quote the late Tom Petty, into the great wide open, a rebel without a clue. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of wrapped up in our fanciful, you know, Lost Angeles, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of lost souls in Los Angeles. But yeah, I mean, I think it was a, a you know, the podcast format became a way for us to escape the confines of needing, you know, uh, $3 million to begin to start to make a feature film or something like that. Like, uh, we didn't have to limit our imagination and our love of sci-fi and fantasy and mutants and, you know, all sorts of things uh, when we are in the audio format because we had the tools, we had the talent and the technology to build a credible world in an audio space. That is direct to consumer as opposed in the past where I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking swimming with sharks and various other ways you kind of have to kiss the ring and pay your dues and go through agency work and grunt work and SAG-AFTRA minimums and everything to get a big break with sci-fi. I mean, I, I think you did mention, was it J.J. Abrams somewhere? I mean, some of the big names that are bandied about, like you could say I was involved with Lost Season 2 and then I got my big break with Sharknado 3. I, I just don't know how it works in the world of kind of animation sci-fi and the worlds that you guys occupy somewhere between animation and the radio and podcast storytelling worlds well i think podcasting in some people's minds is kind of what we're doing right now right it's uh you interview us we talk to you and that's kind of what people have in mind when they think about a podcast but we're doing an audio series like a radio drama radio drama kind of sounds old old timey right like the shadow or something but we're doing this audio series so it's it's an interesting medium because it's really really old and uh, are you familiar with like Nassim Taleb's idea of yes, Lindy? Yes, of course. Yeah. So yes. like, I think what what drew me to this it was like saying, all right, even if we'll make this thing, right, and we'll try to make it Lindy, 
like so we're trying not to make it a topical thing. You know, we're trying to like it's more about ideas, and it's in a format that is older than television. And you know, you can go on YouTube right now and find the Shadow serial, and you know, it'd be eleven hours of the Shadow. There's like you know half a million views. People are still interested in the Shadow. So we thought, well, the investment of time and treasure to make this thing, it, it has the possibility of still mattering a hundred years from now. And that's appealing to me. And we don't have to compromise. We don't have to put up with cardboard walls on our film set. You know, like we can make it all sound like solid gold. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I got to say, you know, we get down to the brass tacks of financing and, and doing these things. How did you fundraise for this? Or what did you do? Or what did it cost? Could we get into uh, the particulars? Because Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you even start? Well, uh, we both went to USC film school and... I know a lot about sound uh, from USC Film School, so I, I, I was the recordist and the editor, the sound designer, and so that's just all time. That's the time cost. I mean, like, have you ever heard of the, the good, fast, cheap triangle? Are you familiar with that concept? No, but I'm thinking of Silicon Valley. What is it? The conjoining triangles of success or uh, something? So, <laughs> but go so, explain so, it to me. So you, if you imagine a triangle, on one side it says good, on one corner it says good, on one corner it says fast, and on one corner it says cheap. So you can make something that is fast and cheap, but it won't be good. You can make something um, good and cheap, but and it won't be fast. Cheap, good and cheap, but it won't be I've fast. I've heard this yeah. about about life partners, but are you know? Are, <laughs> I've heard I've heard it with respect to people who are good looking versus you know deranged or something or issues. You can't have all three. So so you mentioned how long it took us to make, and I think the thing that we paid to fund it was time. Time was our money. Time was our money. So we, we, we changed basically money for time because if we were to make this in a year, I think it would have been incredibly expensive because you have to like get people and like, like we couldn't work around people's schedule. Yeah, this is something we did uh, on weekends, every, uh, you know, every other weekend type of thing. Like this came together very slowly when our friends happened to be available to lend their talents to the show. So it, it came about very organically and very slowly. <laughs> So, yeah, so if you want something to not cost money, you can pay with time sometimes. So this is chock full of sweat and time equity. What are you doing in the meantime to pay the bills in Los Angeles, in SoCal? Uh, well, I um, did follow the dream of being a video game designer. So I do uh, senior technical design work for a company called Wonderstorm. So I'm still in the business of making video games to pay the bills. Yeah, and I, I'm a freelance editor, videographer, and I make, I make promos. I'm a, also a promo producer, writer. I've had just a lot of just bizarre jobs in the industry, and that's where I met a lot of these people that are in NPR Mageddon is just you know on film sets and just working. And what about the exchange of ideas with the people you flattered across member stations and the Tamara Keiths of the world? And you clearly get a lot of retweetage. Again, I'd imagine you guys as a couple of maybe bored producers at an NPR member station. But <laughs> when you do things like this and you mock them up and they retweet it and people get in touch with you, it buys you a lot of publicity runway. Yeah, well, I, uh, I was very into like, have you ever heard of this book Persuasion by uh, Cialdini? Yes. So part of the Twitter was part of like, all right, I, I have this book, Persuasion, and it says, like, you need things to be persuasive. You need things like social proof. So if people from NPR like us, I got some social proof, right? And their authority transferred to me, and I, it makes us powerful in a way, like, you know, in, in your mind. And then we pass it, pass it back by making them look cool in a, in a Photoshop, right? And it's kind of a mutual like. Like, listen, we like you. And I think on Twitter, most people don't get, hey, I like you, reporter. 
most reporters probably get, hey, I don't like you. Because another reason why people go on Twitter is they want to be seen and have people recognize their brilliance. Well, okay, I'll recognize your brilliance. I'll say you're really cool, you know, and, and super fun. And another principle of persuasion is like commitment and consistency. So I would just consistently Photoshop these various people. And it started out as like, this is really weird and we don't know if we like this or not until it began, no, 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 we like this and this is cool. But it kind of took a while for people to kind of get on board with what we were doing. In that same episode, Naima Raza, showrunner and co-host of the hit podcast On with Kara Swisher, talked about her unconventional path to content creation. You know, the old king of all media type reference given to Howard Stern, there's certainly kind of a regency to Kara Swisher <laughs> because she's omniscient. They, like I find mm-hmm. myself eagerly watching Succession and then HBO picks her mm-hmm. to have the Succession pod, which is kind of a side dish to everything else she does, primarily with you, alternately with you know Professor Galloway, Scott Galloway, which I, I originally mm-hmm. came to that through Recode and then when she went to Sway. And then now on. And that that just underscores the point that I travel with her. I don't know if I'm a crawl out of glass Mm -hmm. fan. (laughs) Crawl crawl over glass glass fan. But I would certainly feel lost if, you know, I woke up with insomnia one morning and Kara Swisher wasn't on Spotify. Well, good for you. She makes like 15 things a week, Robin. It's all for you. Um, Yeah, you followed her brand. She has built that business. I think think the question is, how do you keep innovating? And that's what she has been able to do. I think the reason I like working with Karen, I first met her when I was a video journalist at the Times. So I met her when I was a video journalist at the Times. This must have been 2019. And um, she was a going to be on camera for a short video I was doing the interviews for, I was producing and and senior producing and interviewing for. And Kara comes in and I'd been introduced to her over text and I told her, you know, like, don't wear anything wacky in terms of print. And are you going to wear your sunglasses or not? Because the guy needs to light accordingly. And, um, and she sends me back like, a gif of Seinfeld wearing a ruffled white shirt. And I'm like, who is this woman? What is this? And I was familiar with Kara's reporting because I went to Stanford in 2012 and had obviously been a big reader of Recode, et cetera. Um, So she came in and we kind of had a funny exchange where she wanted to wear the sunglasses on camera and we weren't lit for it because I wasn't informed she would be. So, you know, she couldn't wear the sunglasses on camera and we got to know each other then. And when the piece came out, it was about online privacy and uh, it was done with my colleagues, Adam Westbrook and and Andrew Blackwell at the Times. She was like, well, this is really dire. I'm like, well, Kara, like privacy on the internet's really dire. And that kind of started a conversation that when she came and brought her podcast to the Times in 2020, the podcast that became Sway. I was off doing a TV series with CBS and Richard Linklater and my writing partner for film and TV, um, Bill Gutentag. And I was a contributor at the time. So when she was coming back in, I thought, well, a couple things. One, it's summer of 2020. I don't know how much I'm going to be filming because of the pandemic. So all of a sudden, audio became an extremely interesting format to me that I had been a deep consumer of for so long, but had not made before. And two, really clicked with Kara. We had similar interests. So you think we both kind of have lived in the worlds of Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Washington. We both have like a kind of interest in power. And we both are kind of like, to your earlier point about like kissing rings and graveyard shifts, like we, we both like work late at night, but we don't kiss a lot of rings. And so we got along really well. So I helped her launch the show at Sway, I eventually became the senior editor overseeing that show, the showrunner of that show at the New York Times. And yeah, and we've been working together since. So I guess it's like our three year anniversary. Actually, I can ask you because you're candid in many of your writings. You write about 
you write about your sure. family life, about dating, about exercising and everything. There wasn't this intimidation mm-hmm. factor in that you were going to, your voice was going to be in there. You weren't going to be a Wizard of Oz character behind the scenes. There were times that you'd have to volley the serve with her. Yeah. Well, this is interesting because that's been the new show, right? On Sway, we would have Kara, like Kara read these tops that the, you probably remember them. She would kind of say like, here is, you know, today I want to talk to blah, 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 blah. And it was much more NPR-y uh, or, you know, more more um, kind of tightened in. And so this was an innovation when we brought the show over to the New York Magazine and Vox, Kara and I were like, how do we make this different? My thing is, how do we make it more you? And she's just more natural in conversation. Now, we then thought about all the different ways to get it out. And Hannah Rosen, who is the editorial director at New York Magazine for podcasts, was like, well, it needs to be you, Naima, because you guys have a back and forth in this way. And Kara also kind of wanted wow. me to be a character on the show. And so it ended up kind of organically happening. But we didn't know weeks before we launched that that was going to be the format. Probably we decided weeks before it launched that I was going to be a voice with her. And it's it's been, you know, we have a back and forth relationship because producers and talent need to have a back and forth relationship, right? And so... I think you get to experience some of that on the air where we don't always agree and where, but no, it doesn't, does it intimidate me? No, she doesn't intimidate me (laughs) because Robin, like I worked for a while in political reform and consulting all over the world, including in Libya. So like I've encountered the likes of Muammar Gaddafi, who also liked wearing sunglasses. I think Kara would love that description, who also yes. liked wearing sunglasses. Naima Raza, I actually want to I wanna hop and spoke off of the wonderful essay you wrote about your late father. You called him your Abu. Oh, and I read you. that last summer. And I'm thinking about my father, who's in his mid-80s and he's ailing. But were you able to yeah. talk with him about, I mean, one, how immigrant parents would size, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. It took him a while mm-hmm. to understand. You have failed, well, Robin. It, it took him failed. a while to understand that I went to business school <laughs> yes. and became a journalist as mm-hmm. well. But did you, once he digested what you had become, were you polling him as to, Dad, I might leave this project at the New York Times and maybe stay it as a contributor at the New York Times, but he was all in on what you were doing? I think it was interesting. You know, my father... So. My dad was a little bit, I, I think he was like more innovative in some ways than like the typical, like that what you see as the screen dad on, you know, TV shows about immigrants, let's say. But my dad w- was, you know, born in the 1930s, was 50 when I was born. And he was born in pre-partition India. And, and so he was born, you know, and then the family migrated many times. And he came to the U.S. as a Fulbright in the 1950s. Actually, I remember when I saw, saw the film Green Book, I told my wow. dad, like, do you know what Green Book is? Because... I, my reference to Green Book is, is Gaddafi's book, Green mm. Book, which is a book in Libya. But his he, he was like, no, no, I know. I used to travel with that when I was in the States because it was where people of color could stay in hostels, oh, wow. which it was to me shocking to imagine that my dad was doing that. But he you know, had a long career at the World Bank and in international development. And so he, I just like grew up with a bigger world because of him. You know, I feel really lucky to have had the parents I had because it gave me a big sense of the world. I didn't have a lot of people or family friends who were artists per se. There were some, but not many. There's some journalists, but not many. And so I had a more unconventional career path, but my dad has always been, and it, it really matters, I think, in cultures like obviously you're Persian. I'm, my dad lived in Iran for a while, by the way, um, but I'm Pakistani and it really matters, you know, what the men in your life kind of allow in those societies in some way. Like we talk about Malala, well, Malala's dad is also someone who sure. really believed in sending his daughter to education. And my dad was very much like that. 
um, you know, when people ask him, like, aren't you worried about your daughter not being married? He's like, why? Some of the happiest days of my life were when I wasn't wow. married, which obviously made, made my mother thrilled. Yes. But, uh, but you know, it, he, he was more open-minded in that sense. That said, he still, even despite all this, was very worried about when I graduated from Kennedy School and Stanford Business School, I went to these fancy degrees and and then told him that I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. He was like, huh? But you know <laughs> so how my relatives always... in Irondulus reacted? Let me just do the quick impersonation for you. He's like, yeah, please so do. So journalist, does it pay? Like, is it on commission? Why you don't buy a gas <laughs> station? I told your mother. You know, and uh, it's like East Coast yeah. talking to West Coast. It just doesn't jive out. And occasionally they'll see me on TV and it's like, good for you. But why you don't buy a gas station, Farzad? You know. <laughs> Do you regret not buying a gas station? No, I don't regret not taking the LSAT. I'm about <laughs> to go, go to my 25th college reunion, and there's an unopened Princeton Review LSAT kit from 1998, and it was always there break in oh, case wow. of emergency. And I'm thinking about Audie Cornish's interview on yes, on, on and, and how could you actually regret not going to law school? Because that was, in our immigrant sense at least, that's what you do after a respectable college degree. That's but. what you do. By the way, I've taken the LSATs. I was admitted to law school, not once, but twice, but I didn't go. And I, it's my great regret. And I intend to one day get a law degree. Because I think in this country, it is actually, I, I think what Audie's point was, is that it's kind of fundamental. It's how the power in this country, if you think about how change happens, whether it's seatbelts or, or tobacco, and eventually perhaps social media, like how will it happen? It will happen through courts. It will happen through laws. This country is run by lawyers in a way that countries where I grew up were not. And so there is a power. I, I do think if you can, if you have the willpower to go to law school and not become a lawyer, that's a very good thing. But the question becomes like, you know, how do you get away from inertia, which comes back to the whole thing we were talking about earlier? Like, how do you leave a place like the New York Times and start your own thing? You know, it all comes back to having the power to say, okay, I'm going to do something different, even but, but gain the skills along the I way. I always like to say that you could either take your anxiety mm -hmm. and trauma in a lump sum payment, or you can amortize it over however many years <laughs> at a job that you hate and a, a life that makes you miserable. And you and I know so yeah. many consultants and, and billable hours people who are doing that and yeah. even VCs. And so it's really instructive to share notes, especially from kind of the immigrant perspective, where there's always that series of arrows over your head. What are you doing? Where are you going? Where are you going? When are you getting married? It really right. resonates in all of your writing and in the voice that you bring to the show. Yeah, I think that, and, and I and I often try to like in the piece about my father, you know, about his passing. I was trying to try to share just like things I've learned, and in, in case they're kind of interesting to other people, and um, it's always heartening to know when they are. But in the case of my father, I was writing about you know my whole life. He's like, why don't you spend more time with your cousins, your uncle? You're in this random city, you know, doing work. Why don't you go for lunch with my third cousin once removed? I'm like, what? I don't have time for that, you know, and. Even when I was a kid and under my parents' charge all times, I, I did have those relationships. But growing up as an adult, I lost a lot right. of those, right? I picked and chose. I had the more kind of Western notion of chosen family. And and what I realized after my father's passing is like the people who showed up and the familiarity and the knowledge, the fact that I could still be present with my father after his death through these extended relationships that I had been kind of shunning in a way, you know, in the kind of glory of my 20s. To me, there's a lot of wisdom in some of it. And I think what we have the advantage of is like, we get to live between all these worlds and we get to create a life that, you know, and it's not stationary. You ask like, when your parents think about what you become, I'm like, well, what I'm becoming, because what I am now is probably not what I'm gonna be in four years, you know, just looking at past performance. You are listening to some of my interviews with Naima Raza and the guys behind NPR Mageddon. You can catch the whole episode. It's called Disintermedia. 
on NPR, NPR npr.org, the NPR One app, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, recommend, and rate us, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. Speaking of which, mark your calendars. Thursday, May 18th for a huge Full Disclosure Live from the historic Paramount Theater in Charlottesville, Virginia. To commemorate the station's 50th, details post soon on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. You don't want to miss this one. And don't forget to catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.